Good morning. My name is Ben Killerly, and I'm the pastor here if we have not met. If you're between the ages of four to the second grade or traveling with someone who is, now's a great time to go to Kids Club, in case you're wondering what that is. It's for our four-year-olds to our second graders. This morning, we are continuing on in a series in the book of Hebrews. It's a great time to pull out your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's a red one in front of you. We're working through the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Uh, I've kind of joked about it a couple of times. If you think it's crazy that we're going through a verse on a Sunday morning, just consider we're also working through the Old Testament at the same time. So if a verse seems too short, take the Old Testament. The Old Testament seems too big. Well, then we're just going to go through a verse. Merriam-Webster defines faith as this. Faith is complete trust in something. It's complete trust in something. You know, the old metaphor goes like this. If, if I were to put a chair here, it's one thing for me to say that I trust this chair will support my weight. It's quite another thing to sit in it. And in fact, the adage goes another way. If you were to repel, it's one thing to say, I trust that this rope will hold me. It's quite another thing to jump off the cliff. And that's really the difference in the analogy of faith that we're going for here. That faith, as the Bible describes it, is taking God at his word and then living like it's true. It's, it's sitting in the chair. It's metaphorically jumping off the cliff. Believing that the rope is trustworthy and it's good. And as we walk through this chapter in Hebrews 11, what we're looking at is a number of different stories. We'll have about 10 more of them. And these are not perfect men. You know, we've taken to calling this the Hall of Faith, but these are not perfect men. We looked at the examples of some of them. We've got murderers. We've got adulterers. This is not a perfect group of people, yet they're examples of faith. Why? Because over and over, the Bible wants to put out for you, in the face of the world you live in, what does it look like for people to take God at his word and then live like it's true? What does that look like? And we're going to, for the next two weeks, look at some pretty interesting characters. We're going to look at Abel, and the next week we're going to take the time to look at Enoch. And these guys are really fascinating. Because if you look through the rest of them, you've got quite a list of accomplishments. And we could quickly get the perspective that faith is primarily about doing. That it's about doing this. It's about doing the right thing. It's about doing the right list of things. It's about having the right categories. It's a moral code. It's a right list of beliefs. And to think that is to miss the biblical perspective on faith. I think... I think that's why Abel and Enoch show up so early. In fact, if, and I appreciate that Steve read for 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. And then we walk through verse 3 last week looking at the world. The creation of the world was given to us so that we would believe. And I think that starts this way in Hebrews 11 for two reasons. One, if he's going to give you a chronology of faith, starting with the beginning is a pretty good place to start. But two, if you're going to say, I take God at his word, then creation's a pretty good step. 
Now, this doesn't require you to hold to a six-day creation or how you define the word yom. We talked about that last week. We make big missteps in verse 3, making it all about the created, and we miss the creator. That the glory of Genesis 1 is the creator, not the created. And so it's having the faith that this God created us is the glory of Genesis 1 and 2. That's the faith ask of you in 11.3. It's that moment where it calls you in, says, by faith we. So when we come to verse 4, this morning it says this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he is commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, Though he died, he still speaks. As we work through Hebrews, and we work through all these examples, I think the author is trying to give us this perspective of these guys who we don't have huge lists of commendations for. They're a little bit different. And I think we'll see that this week, and I think we'll see it again next. So if you've got your Bible, let's flip back to Genesis 4. Let's take Abel's faith into consideration. If you have Genesis, first book, all the way to the left, go past the introduction, the foreword, the good stuff. You get to Genesis 4. To give you a brief synopsis of context to Genesis 4, you know, 1 and 2 is the creation. Chapter 3 is the fall. Sin enters into the world. And that becomes really important to kind of get our minds around because in chapter 3, if sin is entering into the world, when you turn over into chapter 4, something significant happens. You start to see the cumulative effect of sin. That, that sin isn't just one thing. Sin actually starts growing and metastasizing and getting out of control. And in fact, where we live in 2014, it's had, I don't know how many years to do that, but it's bad. And we're starting to see some of the first, first fruits of sin in chapter 4. We see it growing and growing and getting worse and spreading to more people. And 4.1 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So so initially in chapter 4 you just have Adam and Eve have two children. They have two boys, Cain and then Abel. And it's impossible for us to consider Abel without considering Cain. They're held in contrast in Genesis 4 and they're held in contrast in Hebrews 11. So we're going to have to take a little bit of time to consider both of them this morning. Verse 3 continues. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruits of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. If you read other versions of it, to have regard is to look on with favor. It's an acceptable. The Lord looked on Abel's sacrifice and said this pleased him. Verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He showed no favor, did not accept. So Cain was very angry, and his his face fell. So let's consider some differences. Both of these guys show up with offerings. Now, it's important for us to recognize early on that these guys are bringing offerings and not sacrifices. 
A lot of people, when they talk about this passage, want to think about it as being sacrifices, and offerings and sacrifices are totally different. In fact, you'll find the sacrificial system hasn't existed in Israel yet. It doesn't show up until the Levitical law gets written. It's introduced there. And so it's not about sacrifice. So what's the issue? What's the issue? Well, let's see what happens. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, initially, what I want you to see is this unique picture of God that shows up, actually, in all these places. Because here you have Cain, and he's done something that's displeased the Lord. Now, we don't have an entire context for that. We'll get there. But you need to see an immediate picture of the fact that the Lord is pursuing him with a view towards redemption. The same way he did Adam and Eve when he walked through the garden to find him. He pursues Cain. And asks him, why, are you, why did this bother you? You know, it's, it's this great picture of a, a dad and his son. A, a loving father pursuing a child and saying, why are you disobeying? What's going on with you right now? It, it's a heart towards redemption. It's a, a heart towards repentance. The Lord pursues Cain, gives him an opportunity. But Cain does not rule over sin. Cain let sin reign in him. In verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother when they were in a field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So we see this picture story continue. So, so Cain, being, having, his, having his offering rejected by the Lord, doesn't deal with the Lord. In fact, looks at his brother, whose offering was accepted, and kills him. Now, according to Hebrew literature, according to the Old Testament, if you see anyone who's killed in a field, it's necessarily assumed that it's plotted, planned, preconceived. This was a, it was an intended murder. So, so Cain murders his brother over the single issue that his sacrifice was less acceptable to God than Abel's. And you start to see this picture of sin reigning in Cain's life. So let's take Cain into consideration for a moment. God has pursued Cain from our understanding of this script passage. Cain chooses to give the Lord an offering. Now, we don't know what precipitated this offering. We don't know if, if Adam and Eve taught them about offerings or taught them about sacrifices. You have no idea. You just come up with Cain, takes the first fruits of his farm, and takes them to the Lord to give him a gift. Presumably, I thanks God for blessing us. Thank you for holding us. Thank you for keeping us. And yet, for some reason, the offering's not accepted. So we have to answer the question, why? Well, we're living in North Dakota, so I can't cancel the fact that he's a farmer. It's not farmers are not unacceptable to the Lord. And that's kind of an important distinction for us to create. Because for years, people have walked through this passage and taught that holding livestock was worth more than farmers. That God appreciated the, the gift of a, a sacrifice of an animal more than he did 
the first fruits of the farm. Now we have to conceptualize that into the way we walk now. Because what both of these men did was they took of their hard labor and they offered something to God. And we could read into this that there are certain roles and there are certain ideas that God finds more pleasure in than others. And we'd be wrong. See, God loves all of us. And all of the gifts, the talents, and the abilities that you have, he gave you. And so in God, having created you, built you, and given you gifts, the offerings that you're able to give back to him based on the work of your hands are always going to be acceptable to him when they're from your hands. Now let me illustrate that for you. God created all of us, gave all of us a purpose and a calling, gave us all talents. God does not look at me as a pastor differently than he looks at you. God does not have different expectations for me as a pastor than he does for you. He doesn't have a hierarchy. He doesn't just call people into ministry, and he doesn't just call people into missions. He calls people into everything that you're currently doing. If you wonder why you're a this or that, it's because he's called you to do it. And he's put you in that place to use you for his glory. That's not the distinction that's drawn here. What is the distinction? Why is it that Abel and Cain are different? Why is it that both of these guys, because it's not who they are and it's not what they've done. So there's an interesting distinction. Well, according to Hebrews 11.4, the difference was faith. And in fact, you see that lived out in Cain. You see it lived out in Cain. When the Lord pursues Cain, he chooses self-pity rather than repentance. Rather than seeing the Lord, meeting the Lord, having a confrontation with the Lord, rather than walking into the gracious presence of God who's pursuing him and saying, God, you're right. I, I want to make this better. I want to I be in a right relationship with you. Cain immediately makes it about the rejection of himself. And immediately starts to roll down a spiraled hill of sin where it starts with him having a jealousy born in his heart for his brother and ends in him knifing him in the woods or in a field. Cain allows sin to roll him out of bounds. So what's the difference between them? The difference is faith. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he is commended as righteous. The difference is faith. The interesting thing about that, and I think the, the pointer, and this is why this, there's a big highlight on both Abel and Enoch, is when you look at Abel, what do we know about him? How often did Abel attend Bible studies? Do you think Abel was consistent with his quiet time? Do you think Abel honored his mother and father on every holiday? What do we know about Abel? Nothing. We kind of know, we know he was born, and we knew he gave an offering. And you're led to believe by the scriptures and by the references to him that when he gave an offering to the Lord, his heart was open to the Lord. That he was trusting God. That he wanted to please the Lord. 
that he didn't approach God with this perspective of, I just want to do this so that you'll love me more. I just want to do this so that you'll accept me. The very heart you see in Cain. Abel showed up with a heart and a desire to please the Lord. I brought you the first, I brought you the fatty parts of this lamb because I thought it would really honor you. Abel shows up with this heartfelt desire to please the Lord. That's it. And the scriptures commend him for it. Now that's huge for us, isn't it? It's huge for us. You know, there are all sorts of characters we need to take more into consideration into our faiths. Abel's one of them. Enoch will get next week. Think about the guy across the cross from Jesus in the book of Mark. When Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did that guy do right? Nothing. He was on a cross. You know when you're nailed to a cross, you know your ability to do good works is? Very little. And you start to see this picture that the scriptures, the Bible, faith doesn't demand this list of good works from you. That God expects from you is faith. That you just trust him. That he's like that chair we stop talking about him being trustworthy and we sit in it. It's like the rappelling rope. We stop saying, yes, it's, it's a trustworthy rope. But we grab the rope, we harness ourselves in and jump. That, that's the call of these passages is that we dig in deep to our faith and we'd say, God, you are trustworthy. You're trustworthy and you're true. And I'm going all in because of faith. Faith is what keeps, this is what keeps faith becoming a list of rules or a moral code. It's starting to realize that it's an expression of the heart. And that expressive faith is a matter of your heart and not a matter of your hands. Put it this way. The gospel does actually demand your obedience. But it doesn't demand your performance. Think about that for a moment. The gospel does demand your obedience, but does not demand your performance. So when we sing, come as you are, that's the gospel. So if you've shown up on a Sunday morning and you're neck deep in sin and you shook your hands of it as you walk through the door, we're glad you're here. That's the gospel. Come as you are. You don't have to have a huge list of attributes or beliefs or traits or you don't have to have morally nailed everything. God just wants you to trust him. He calls you to trust him completely, to have faith in him. Faith is not a list of rules or a moral code. In fact, the Old Testament, the law was established to show the rules, to teach the boundaries And the fascinating thing, if you've read your Old Testament lately, is you find when people try to keep rules and try to keep boundaries, we fail at it over and over and over again. That's why the New Testament picture is different. But what's more fascinating than that is is if you follow the Old Testament picture, when guys start figuring out they can't measure up to the rules, they start faking it. You see that in Malachi. It's, it's one of the more challenging passages. Malachi is a challenging book to study, but Malachi 1.6 
10 says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O Lord, or a priest who despises my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? This is God's response. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table has been despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not an evil? And you find what these people did once they realized they couldn't meet the rules, once they couldn't meet the the measure of the boundaries, they started faking it. And when God said, give me a pure and a blameless sheep to sacrifice to cover for your sins, guys started going, well, God doesn't know. Let's send him the blind one. We We got a lame guy in our herd. We don't need him anyway. Let's sacrifice that one. And in Malachi, God's saying, you're kidding me. You don't think I know? You don't think I know the games you play? You don't think I know the performance you're after? And you find in Jude 11, that's the way of Cain. Thinking we can trick God. Thinking we can play games with God. Thinking it's going to be a performance issue. Thinking that all God wants from us is a checklist that we turn in on a weekly basis on a Sunday morning. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't chew. I didn't hang out with girls who did. I didn't do this, that, or the other. I went to Bible study three times and I prayed for my mom's health. Check. That's not what God requires of you. It's not even what he asks of you. He asked for faith. He asked for faith that you as his child would take him at his word and that you'd live like it was true. God asks for faith. We're called to take God at his word and live like it's true. Not because we have to. And not because we'll receive a reward if we do. Or not because there'll be a special blessing at the end of that story. And not because he'll hear my prayers better. Because it's what he calls us to. And somewhere in the end of this, we believe it's the best thing for us. Now I'm a dad. I've been a dad for five years. Which only means that I've successfully kept a child alive for five years. Most of you have parented longer than I. So this isn't like macro parenting advice, write it down. But this is to say is that having parented now a five-year-old and a three-year-old and a one-year-old, that I have a different perspective in my kids than they do. You know, one of my favorite stories to tell of Pierce is when Pierce was about two, Pierce's favorite rebellion in the world, you'll get a kick out of this, was touching the toilet seat. When Pierce would get frustrated with me and he wanted to rebel, he'd run into the bathroom and touch the toilet. He'd be like, Dad, nah. And at some point you just want to go, Pierce, you're touching a toilet. <laughs> like, think about that. Process the disgusting nature of what, we haven't bleached it yet. And it was funny to watch his little rebellions. And and it's funny to be a parent because you watch your kids do all kinds of things. My kids always want to play in the street. 
And the funny thing is, they think it's the funnest place to play. And you know what a dad does? As a dad, you just want to say, guys, I know better than you. Why do I know better? Well, in this particular case, it's because I'm about three feet taller and 34 years older. I got a little bit more experience. And so I, I know better than they do. I know the consequences of their decisions. I know that what they're doing is going to add up to something. I know that touching a toilet, regardless of how good it might feel, is a fruitless behavior. It's the same appreciation we have to have for the Lord. You know why God puts restrictions? It's not because he doesn't want you to have fun. He's a good daddy. It's not because he looks down on you and says, I don't want you to do this, that, and the other because they're fun, and my people will not have fun. It's because he knows better. He's got a different perspective. He's got like a 20,000-mile view over you. So he sees the implications of your actions. So whether you're pursuing sin and thinking that's going to satisfy or following rules thinking that's going to make you feel better or that's somehow going to merit him, what you find in the gospel is not rules. And it's not, it's freedom. If there's anything I would want my five-year-old to know is that there's so much freedom in obedience so much freedom. And if you've got a small kid, you know what that looks like. It's that morning you wake up and you've got a tremendous plan because you want to go swimming and you want to have a picnic and you want to go play outside. And your kid wakes up with a horrible attitude and starts beating his sister. And you're going, Pierce, I have so many great things for you today. I, I want to show you so many awesome things. I want to have so much fun with you. Please start obeying. I, I'm tired of disciplining you. I've, I've got great things for you. That's the same way that our Heavenly Father is with us. Guys, we, we miss it when we think that the Bible demands rules from us. We miss it when we think that it's a moral code that we're supposed to pursue. The heart of the nature of the gospel is that we trust God and take him at his word. And, and when the Bible says that Jesus Christ's sacrifice at the cross was sufficient for you, we're going to trust that. And we're going to walk like it's true. That means I don't have to try to prove my value. I don't have to try to prove my worth. I don't have to make myself pleasing or good before the Lord because his son took care of it. And when God says, lo, behold, I'll be with you always. We trust that. We take God at his word and say, he will never leave me or forsake me. And we recognize the connection between that passage and therefore go and make disciples. That We don't just grab the promises and forget the obedience. We're going to take all of God's word, his holy counsel, we're going to take it by faith. We're going to believe it and trust that it's true. And we're going to see these examples all summer. Of guys who did that. Did radical, crazy things. These are not perfect people. But they're people who took God at his word and believed that what he said was true. And we see a real fun example in Abel because we don't know anything about him. And next week when we walk into Enoch, you know what we know about even uh, Enoch? Less than we know about Abel. We just know he walked with God. 
and we'll walk through that next week. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are thankful for your word. Father, that you have inspired it, that you've given it to us, that we could know your heart and we could know your character. Father, we miss the boat. We miss the right perspective of you when we think it's about doing the right things, when we think it's about a checklist, when we think we need to perform, when we think we've got to, that our performance can please you. And Father, I know that every person in this room is guilty of it, and I'm probably the worst. Father, forgive us for the seasons when we don't think you know better. And forgive us for the seasons when we don't trust you enough and we don't take you at your word. Father, I pray that you would make us a people who love you and who trust you and who trust your word. And Father, if you call us to step out and to stand out, that we will. Not for a brownie point or a scorecard, but because we trust you and we love you. And we believe that's the best thing for us. Father, we love you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.